Well, this evening, I want to share with you a story. I want to share with you what is in some ways one of my favorite Bible stories, because I think it is one of the most beautifully crafted stories that we get in the Scriptures. It's the story of Esther, and it's buried away somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament. I'm sure many of you know it, but I would guess that some of you have never even found it, never mind read it. And I would recommend it to you, because it is just a beautifully crafted story. And if you've not read it before, we're not going to be able to do it all this evening. Go home and read it. It's probably no more than three quarters of an hour, and it's just a beautifully crafted story. If, if you don't feel very religious, you don't like reading your Bible, don't worry. God is not mentioned in this story. Um, but we might find that he's present. So let me... I haven't forgotten to read the scriptures. We're going to do that in case you're worrying. But, but just before we get to that, let me give you a bit of background because we're going to launch into the middle of this story. And so you need to know, first of all, who are the key actors? First, there is King Xerxes, also known as Hazuerus, great ruler of the civilized world, described in chapter 1 as ruling 127 provinces from India to Kush. Kush is in Egypt. So a huge area of land. He had various titles, king of Persia and Media, the great king, king of kings, king of all the nations. But the picture we get of him in this story is somebody who is extravagant, impulsive, capricious, forgetful, but very, very powerful. And perhaps not a great combination to have those qualities together with great power. The second character that we need to know is the character of Haman. Haman is a conceited nobleman in King Xerxes' court. Insecure, devious, Haman is the bad guy in this story. And, and he's somebody who's just totally self-centered and, and full of his own importance and can think of nothing else. So that one day he walks into the king's presence and the king has got something on his mind and he says to him really as the first person who walks into the room, what should the king do for the man he wants to honor? And all Haman can think is, He's talking about me. And so he lists what he would like to happen to him. And it turns out that it wasn't him in view at all. And then the third person is Esther. Esther is the beautiful orphan Jewish girl and the hero of this story. And then behind her is her uncle, Mordecai the Jew, a wily old Jewish man who has brought up Esther, wise, courageous, loyal to the king, but loyal most of all to the Jewish people. Those are the four key characters that we need to know. And this is what we need to know about the story so far. The situation is that the people of God, the Jews, are in a foreign land in Persia under the rule of this foreign king, King Xerxes. And he is in power. In chapter 1, he sacked his queen. Uh, in, in chapter 2, he appointed a new queen. Now, all that is quite a story, but you'll have to go away and read that because we haven't got time to go through all that this evening. But the result is that through a year-long personal beauty pageant, Esther has become 
queen. You realize there are beauty pageants in the Bible. All kinds of things. Um, in chapter 3, we encounter the confrontation between the bad guy, Haman, and the wily old Jew, Mordecai. Because Haman loves to be honored, and Mordecai refuses to give him honor. And this makes Haman mad. And he wants to get his own back. And he plots his revenge. And he decides it's not enough just to get his revenge on Mordecai the individual. But he wants to get his revenge on Mordecai the Jew and against all his people. There's a real sense of the tribal warfare that we see rearing its head today. Even in Libya, it's the tribe of Gaddafi and the other peoples. And that's still a reality. And we see something of that here as Haman plots his revenge and plots genocide. And we're going to pick the story up in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Perhaps from verse 12, as that's where the paragraph begins. This is page 503 of your Bibles. If you have trouble finding Esther, page 503, Esther chapter 3, as the king's edict that he's made, incited to do so by Haman, goes out um, throughout his kingdom. And we read that then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each, of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes to him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa. 
to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want us to, to focus our attention this evening on this exchange between Mordecai and Esther in this situation where the whole of the Jewish people stand under peril of destruction, of genocide. And we see in this chapter the way that Mordecai manages to get a message through to Esther to say, please go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for your people. And Esther says, I can't. I probably won't get an opportunity. I might be the queen, but I just can't go into the king's presence whenever I like. And after four years of marriage, which was about how long they'd been married at that point, I don't get called all that often. And it's 30 days since I was last called. And I've no confidence that I'm going to be called again before this edict comes into an effect. And I can't go unless I'm invited. You know the law. Everybody knows the law. To go into the king's presence if he hasn't called for you means death. Unless you're lucky enough that he extends the sector to you. And in response to that, Mordecai gives this reply. And I want to read these words again. He says to Esther, and these are the only actual words of Mordecai that are, are recorded in the book. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And I want us to think this evening about Mordecai's reply and how it applies, Mordecai's reply, and how it applies to us. First of all, is it an excuse for inaction? 
I was preaching some years ago at a church. I can't actually remember the church or, or who it was who spoke to me afterwards. But I remember that somebody came up to me and said, I cannot accept that my failure to do something can affect somebody else's spiritual destiny. And when I looked a little bit surprised at this, they quoted this verse, that if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And so they were saying, if I don't do what God is asking me to do, it doesn't matter because God will find another way. And I was a bit taken aback, and I had to go away and, and reflect on this and what exactly this verse was saying. Can we relax in the confidence that at the end of the day, our obedience doesn't really matter because God has always got a plan B? And I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no because our actions have consequences. That is the way that God has designed His world in which He's placed us. If we drink too much and get into our car and, and drive around the streets and knock somebody down, our actions have consequence for that person. If it's a bad accident and we kill them, they have eternal consequences for that person. That is the reality. And in the spiritual realm, it is no different. God, speaking to Ezekiel, said, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die, and you will be held accountable. That wicked person it will have consequences for them and your failure to do what I asked you to do will have consequences for you. And I think to, to take that statement from Mordecai and, and pull it out and use it as a justification for whether I obey God or not doesn't really matter. It just completely ignores the, consequent, the, the context in which Mordecai said it. Mordecai is not saying to Esther, it's just a matter of your personal choice. You know, if you feel comfortable going to the king and, and seeing if this works, you know, try it. And if you don't feel comfortable, and you know, just, just relax and stay home with your, with your maids. Now, this isn't intended as a reassurance that obedience doesn't matter. Rather, it's a strong warning of the need to obey. Mordecai's answer is not, don't worry if you don't do what God is calling you to do. God will find another way. But rather, don't think that you can get away with putting your own safety and security first. If you don't do what God is asking you to do, you're in big trouble. Don't think that you can continue to enjoy your salvation and do nothing to extend that to others. And God will let you get away with it. I think, too, this completely misunderstand how God works in extending his good news of salvation to people. You know, when, when William Carey, who's the father not just of Baptist missions, but of, of modern missions to a very great degree, um, proposed for discussion the question of whether the command given to the apostles, the command that we started the service with, was 
was still binding on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world. He was told, young man, sit down, you're an enthusiast. Being an enthusiast was obviously a bad thing. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And that response to Carey was completely wrong. True, God does not consult us about what he's going to do. But God does involve us in what he is doing. He is a personal God dealing with people. And his way of doing that is very personal. He sends his son to bring us his message. And his son entrusts his message to his disciples, the apostles, to pass on. I sometimes think when I read the story of Peter and Cornelius, and if you know that story, Cornelius is the Roman centurion who needs to find Christ, and God sends an angel to him. But he doesn't send an angel to him to tell him the message. He sends an angel to him to prepare him for a man to come with the message. And that's how God works in passing on this message. It is entrusted to us. Paul in Romans says, Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what do they need in order to do that? He says, How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one they have not heard? How can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And this sequence is needed of somebody being sent, of preaching, that they're hearing, that they're understanding, that they're believing. That is how God works. And this statement is not an excuse for us to sit back and think, well, if I don't do it, it doesn't really matter. What it is, rather, is a statement of confidence in God. A statement of confidence in God, even if God is never mentioned. And to have a book in the Bible in which God is never mentioned, it's a real problem to some. You know, when the Jews translated this into Greek, it was such a problem that God wasn't mentioned that they inserted extra bits and extra prayers and made sure that he got lots of mentions that weren't there in the original Hebrew. Well, our Bible is a bit more faithful to the original Hebrew and you will not find God mentioned. But you know, it's possible to talk a lot about God and not really communicate very much about Him. Sometimes it's possible to say a lot about God without any words. And that is one of the challenges we find ourselves up against in some parts of East Asia where you cannot go in preaching and sharing and talking about the gospel in the way that you would like to. One of those situations where we're involved in is North Korea. When we go into North Korea, they know we are Christians. We make no secret of that. Uh, and one of the small outworkings of that is whenever we sit down with North Korean officials to eat together, they wait because they know we can't eat until we've prayed. And so they're very polite and they wait and then we all tuck in. We had an interesting situation with one um, of the businesses that we're involved in that had got permission from North Korean officials to set up this business inside North Korea. But they needed to bring in equipment from the United States to North Korea. And 
that meant that technology had to be exported from the United States to North Korea. Now there are so many laws about exporting anything to North Korea from the United States. And we began to realize it was one thing to pray for the hearts of North Korean officials to be moved. It was another thing to pray for the U.S. State Department to change its policies. And the team prayed and they waited and they prayed and they waited. And, and somebody approached the team and said, you know, I have some contact with some U.S. senators and maybe they can help move things along on your behalf. And they thought about that and they prayed about that and decided that was not right in this situation. And they decided that as a team, and I think we're looking at about five or six people, they would take it in turns to fast as well as to pray. And that any time one of the team would be fasting that day. And while this is happening, they're traveling in and out of North Korea, often a week inside, a week outside, arranging other aspects of the project. And they tried to arrange it so that whoever was inside North Korea was not one of the people who was fasting. But it was the team in China and a member of the team in China that was fasting. However, their organization was not perfect. And, uh, and after a while, they got a bit confused. And it ended up that somebody who was inside was fasting and meeting with officials. And it came to lunchtime. And they said, come and eat. The officials, that is. And, and they said, no, 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 that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not hungry. And they said, no, 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 come and eat. And they said, no, 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 no really, 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 I'm okay. And they said, you know, come and eat. In Asia, you have to eat together. And, and they kept pressurizing them until eventually they had to explain why they were not eating to the North Korean officials. The next day, that permission came through from the U.S. State Department. And the team felt that God was saying to them, I want these North Korean officials to know who is in charge of the U.S. State Department. And a little while later, they had another problem with the equipment. This was more of a technical problem, but it was delaying it coming. And so they were waiting and, and they were praying as a team. And the North Korean officials who were keen for this project to go ahead were waiting as well. And, and one of them said to a member of the team quietly, could you do what you did before? You're not supposed to believe in God. And the team are not really supposed to talk about God. And, and God is not often mentioned, but like this story, his fingerprints are everywhere. And if you read through this story, you will find that it is a series of miraculous, unbelievable coincidences that lead to the saving of the people of God. From the very beginning, the timely demise of Queen Vashti, allowing Esther to become queen. Mordecai overhearing a plot to the king. I can't tell you these details. You've got to read the story. The king's sleepless night after he's forgotten who rescued him. Naaman being in the outer court at just the right time or the wrong time, depending on what you think of Naaman falling all over the queen in his desperation to entreat mercy and only getting himself into bigger trouble. And obviously, most of all, the critical fact that at this critical moment, Esther is queen. God is never mentioned by name, 
but his fingerprints are there in all the details. And sometimes I think we need to recover that sense that God is in charge of the big picture. But he's also in charge of all the details of the big picture and the details of our lives and how they fit into that picture. When I was at school here in Edinburgh, I had a, a Christian friend um, who was also from a Jewish background and he had this great sense of God in the detail. Sometimes a bit excessive if we arrived five minutes early for a meeting. What was God's purpose in this? You know, we crossed the road quickly because the green man was already green when we got there. What was God's purpose in this? And, and I think sometimes it was a bit excessive. But I need, think we need to trust that our God is in control of the details even as we concentrate more on obedience than we do on detective work as to exactly what he's doing in that context and this is a statement of confidence in God that he is there and he will deliver not us it's not a question of either Esther acts or God acts he is the source of the saving of the Jews, whether it is through Esther or whether it is another way. Even though Mordecai can't be sure of Esther, who is probably 19, 20, 21, all the hopes of the nation in this young girl. And Mordecai had hopes, but I'm sure he had uncertainties. But when it came to God, he had hopes and certainties that he knew he could be sure of God and it helps us realize that that we are not the only hope God has while he is our only hope it doesn't apply the other way around sometimes in our genuine concern to see something happen we can overrate our value sometimes even as 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 mission groups we can report our work as if we're the only people working in a particular area and the only group through which God is working and there's practically nowhere in the world that that is true today if you go back 40 or 50 years there were places where perhaps we were the only group um, in Mindora one of the islands of the Philippines when we first sent missionaries there in the 1950s there was nobody else and we didn't quite know what we were doing. We knew there were between about five and seven tribal groups on this island and people were allocated to them. And their first task was find the people you have been sent to. Two of the groups were never found. They didn't actually exist. It's a bit of disappointing commission. Evangelize the non-existent. <laughs> um, but the others, their tribes did exist and, and they were at that point the only group working among them but that's just simply not true today in all our situations we're working alongside others we're working together and and God is taking things forward through a whole variety of different people and I think this confidence in God it gives us confidence that we don't need to be frantic about our contribution we just need to be focused. There is a sense in which we can relax, we should relax, and concentrate on what God has given us to do. And not worry about what we cannot do, because He can do it. There is a sense in which, even if what seemed to be the best opportunity has been spoiled or wasted by somebody else, 
we know that God is not surprised. There is a sense, I think, where we don't need to be paralyzed about questions of guidance. And, and sometimes you find Christians who, who are thinking, I'm not quite sure if I should do this or I should do that. And as a result, they're doing neither. And sometimes the answer is, stop waiting and do one or the other because they are both good works and do them or do one of them and trust that God will lead and, and God will overrule if it wasn't quite what he was expecting. But don't do nothing. And alongside this statement of confidence in God, I think these words of Mordecai are a challenge to courageous action wherever God has placed us. I think they say to Esther and to us that the position that God has placed us in is not just some accident but it is part of his plan whether that's our position in our work in our career in our organization whether that is the training that he has given us or allowed us to receive our qualifications that's not a distraction that's part of his intention part of who he intends us to be what he intends to use perhaps not in the ways that we expect it but part of his plan his plan for such a time as this for Esther it was this critical point where the future of her people were at stake for such a time as this when I think about where we are at in missions, it seems we've been through a number of eras in, in recent history of missions. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, it, it was very much mission under the shadow of the empire. Whether we liked it or not, what we were able to do in mission was very, very much affected by empires. Even if you go back 500 years to Francis Xavier, who we were talking about last night, what he was able to do depended on the Portuguese Empire. What British missionaries were able to do often depended on the British Empire. What American missionaries were able to do depended on the American Empire. You weren't supposed to call it the American Empire, but American involvement in Philippines and Taiwan and places like that. And then from about the middle of last century, we entered the period of closed countries. The most dramatic closure was China when it became communist and and the missionaries literally thousands of missionaries all had to leave China within the space of about a year or so and between about 1950 and 1980 China and many other countries really were very closed and we didn't know what was happening inside them and we had next to no opportunity to get inside them and just to see what was happening never mind contribute to what God was doing but then from the, the end of the 1980s onwards, we've been in the era of globalization when no country can survive if it continues totally turned in on itself. And these countries which had followed paths of, of great self-reliance realized that they can't remain disconnected with the rest of the world and hope to catch up with the rest of the world. And so China opened its doors with the open door policy not to missionaries but initially to foreign experts and then to foreign aid and assistance and, and now more and more to foreign businesses 
And, and pretty much all the different countries that had been tight shut opened up to the right people with the right qualifications and the right experience who would go in. And who goes in? Well, all sorts of different people. But it opened the door to Christians with a mission purpose to go into these contexts. And our first calling, whatever our position, is to obedience to God's bigger plan that should be so much bigger than our own career plan. To seize the opportunity that he's given us. Who knows, says Mordecai to Esther, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And the whole story is built on the assumption that yes, it is God's plan that she has come to royal position for such a time as this. But doing that may mean risking everything. We see that in Esther's situation. She might be the queen. She might have, I would guess, the highest position possible for a woman in that country. But it means risking her life to go unannounced into the presence of the king. It's against the law. And this is not a guy you want to mess with because he is capricious and makes sudden decisions and she could very genuinely lose her life. And she says, I don't think I'll get the opportunity. It's too risky. And Mordecai says, take the risk. Make the opportunity. And in her reply to Mordecai, she says, okay. And if I perish, I perish. What faith? <laughs> what faith? But not so much what faith, but what obedience to do that. And I think the story here teaches us that careful planning, involvement even in a pagan state, holding a powerful position, can be the right place to be if we are ready for self-sacrifice and courageous action and don't just use it to better ourselves. And the truth is that even today, going into some of the situations that the gospel calls us into means taking risks that we won't have to take if we stay in Edinburgh. We were aware going to the Philippines. People told us often there are more guns in this country than there are people. And within two years of our arrival in the Philippines, one of our colleagues was murdered by a housebreaker. A housebreaker in the Philippines is never unarmed. In the years since, Two colleagues, one with OMF and one not with OMF, have been murdered in the Philippines because they were reaching Muslims. Much more specifically, not just randomly because they were in a violent country, though that is part of the risk. Sometimes it's simply the risk of the traffic. I know we all complain about the traffic in Edinburgh, but you should see the traffic in Vietnam if you really want traffic. And there's a real risk, simply, of road accidents. Um, the car we've been lent for this home assignment recently failed its MOT. My Indian daughter-in-law said it would have no problems being on the road in India. <laughs> Sometimes it's risks to health. Risks to health are much, much reduced compared to what they used to be in the, in, in the early days of mission in the 19th century. Missionaries to Africa as part of their basic equipment would pack their coffin because they had a life expectancy, I think, of about two and a half years on the field 
don't worry about your home assignment. Well, we don't ask you to pack your coffin anymore. We do ask that you write your will. Um, actually, medical care in much of the world is very good, but not everywhere. And we still feel that people need to go to places where if they have an accident, there won't be a quality hospital nearby. And there'll be a few more hours or days away from medical care because that's where the people are. And the people will only be reached if people will take those risks. There are risks of natural disaster, as we've seen in Japan, one of the most modern and safest of countries with fantastic medical care, still cannot be ready for a once-in-a-thousand-year tsunami. There are risks, of course, to your career and possibly to your pension and those other things that we keep being told by the media are so important. There are risks that have to be taken if people are to hear the good news. A former general director of OMF used to say, you know, there are all these different ways that you can die, but reassured, you can only die by one of them. <laughs> I don't know that that was probably reassuring. <laughs> but the reality, of course, is you can also die in your bed in Edinburgh or under an Edinburgh bus. The question is, are we going to be ready to set aside the things that the world tells us important and to take the risks that God asks us to be obedient to what he's saying us to do? And when she takes this risk, I notice that it is a risk supported by prayer. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And being a partner in God's purposes is not just about going. Because in the end, only a few are actually called to go. But it's also about staying and praying. We have people inside North Korea. I know we've got one young lady inside North Korea at the moment. Will you pray for them? We have people living inside Muslim communities. And, and there's a risk to that. I think often a much higher risk than, than in places like China and Vietnam, where the government might not be very keen on your presence, but the people are really quite welcoming. With somebody living and working in a Muslim community in the Philippines several years ago, who was killed by a Muslim who was a little mentally unstable but had picked up from the community that they didn't want this person so he took a gun and he dealt with them and he left behind a wife and a three-year-old daughter today that wife leads the prayer ministry for that Muslim people group she's still committed to what God has called them to and prayer for people in these situations is just as important as having people at the front lines in these situations. It's not just about the people who are ready to go, but the people who are ready to give themselves to pray who have to stay. And prayer is hard work. It doesn't just happen. It isn't that easy. But it does make a difference. And throughout the scriptures, we see this call to prayer. Esther says, if I'm going to do this, fast for me. Paul says often in his letters, pray for me. Or through your prayers, we've seen deliverance. 
And most remarkably of all, in Gethsemane, Jesus says to his disciples, that dodgy lot who in just a few hours were all going to run away, pray for me. I'm not sure I fully understand prayer, but I see time and time again throughout the scriptures that it is an important part of God's purposes, an important part of how we partner in what he is doing to see it happen, that we pray. And so we have this challenge to courageous action. And finally, a warning that there are consequences to disobedience. Esther won't escape. She seems to be in the safest place in the royal palace with the position of queen. Nobody knows she's a Jew. And keeping her head down may seem safer, but only in the short term. We may feel safe, but it's only in the short term. She is also in danger. But she's actually in a much bigger danger. She's in danger that she will miss out on the opportunity to be part of God's purposes. It's a sobering and challenging thought and a privilege to realize that there has never been anybody else like you in the history of the world and there never will be again. Some wag sense, after God made you, he took the mold and threw it away and said, I'm never going to make another one like that. Well, he's not, because he has made each of us unique with a unique part in his purposes. We have one life. It's to be given to him to find his will and purpose and to pursue that. And if we don't obey, God will raise up others who will do what he requires. There will be a day when all tribes and nations will be represented in heaven, for God has promised that. But our failure to obey will affect not just us, but will affect individuals. And we will have missed the opportunity and the honor of partnering with him in his work. We will have missed that blessing of fellowship with him as we work together. And I think it's always amazing that we are called co-laborers with Christ, with God that he wants to do what he's doing in his world in partnership with us. But we may miss out on that. And that's what Mordecai warns Esther of. So, what happened in the story? Well, like many Hollywood movies, you can probably guess what happened next. Esther took her life in her hands. She walked into the presence of the king and... She didn't die, or we probably wouldn't have the story. The king did extend the golden scepter. She didn't actually immediately leap in and say, I've got this request to make. Instead, well, it's a bit complicated, and you'll have to read the rest of the story. Events played out so that the people of God were preserved, so that justice was done, and Haman was hung. There happened conveniently to be some 75 feet high gallows that were sitting outside waiting for somebody. Not for Haman, but Haman was the one who was hung there. And what I think nobody really expected, many people as a result of what they saw happening became Jews, joined the people of God, saw God's hand and wanted to be part of this people that enjoyed this divine protection because they followed 
a God that was even more powerful than the decrees of the most powerful King Xerxes. And since that day, the Jews have celebrated a festival each year to remember that deliverance. That's Esther's story. What about your story? What position or qualification has God given you? I don't know the answer to that. What is he asking you to do with it? Perhaps you're still exploring that. Perhaps you're still wondering. But keep asking that question. Why have you been put into the particular position? It may not be the position of a queen. Uh, the recent opening for that is closing very soon. <laughs> so that won't be an opportunity for us. What is he asking you to do with it? What are you afraid of? Don't be surprised that you're afraid. God is not surprised that you're afraid. Launching out into the unknown is always something that incites natural fears. But what will you do? What will be your next steps? Uh, and when I was preparing this, I, I wrote down at first, what will be the end of your story? And then I realized, of course, that none of us know what the end of our story will be. But what will be the next step of your story of risk-taking obedience as you follow whatever it is that God is showing that you should do with your unique life in His worldwide purposes? What will be the next step? You know, just after 9-11, when the Allied forces led by the United States had just invaded Afghanistan in pursuit of the Taliban, Christian missionaries working in the Muslim world were feeling extremely nervous about this situation and whether Muslims as a larger group would rise up and um, take revenge against these agents of, of Western culture as they are often seen for what was happening in Afghanistan. In the middle of that nervousness and fear, one of the larger missions exclusively focused on reaching Muslims put out an advertisement that said simply the safest place to be is at the center of God's will whatever God is asking you to do the safest place to be is at the center of God's will and that is where you need to be let's pray Father, we thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you for this young girl who was ready to put everything on the line when she realized that that was what was demanded for the sake of her people, your people, the Jewish people. And we thank you, Lord, that you were ready to put everything on the line in your son that we could be brought into your family and into your purposes and made your co-workers and sent out into your world with good news of reconciliation, good news about Jesus. And we're amazed that you've made us your co-workers. Give us the courage, Lord, to take whatever steps you're asking us 
whether they are big steps or just small steps that are needed this week to obey you, to be faithful to you, to be part of what you're doing in your world, that your purposes would be fulfilled and we would have the part that you've asked us to have in what you're doing for the glory of your name.